welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin, your host, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Christ in Context. It has been a fat, long minute. Um, since I have recorded and I am so, so excited to be back. Um, the past month or so almost killed me. Uh, not, not literally, but I was very, very stressed out. Um, basically I think the last time that I recorded was right after midterms in my semester. And then, it just kept going. Um, I had, I didn't do the math, but I had at least, uh, I had two or three like 10 page papers and then a bunch of other shorter, like five or six or eight page papers. And it was just a lot of busy work that I didn't want to do. Um, but it was, I mean, I had to do it. Um, I finished out the semester and so I'm going to give some updates about just kind of what's going on in my life. And, um, I've also, because I've had, I think the past month off of just kind of doing schoolwork and not focusing a ton on the podcast, I've been able to think through things and kind of let stuff sit. And, um, so I've got some updates about, um, kind of the direction that I want to take the podcast. I've got a little bit more clarity. Um, I think I, maybe didn't articulate things the best at the beginning of the podcast. Like when I was first announcing, this is what we're about. Um, I remember a few weeks in, my wife asked me, you know, what, who's your goal audience? And I was like, I, I don't know. So I've got some more clarity. This is going to be just a couple minutes. So if you don't really care, I will post the, uh, timestamp for when we actually get into the text. We're getting back into Zechariah. So I'll post the timestamp in the description if you want to skip ahead. So anyways, um, in the past month, I have written a ton of papers. I've done a ton of research. Um, I researched about um, the Old Testament theology of creation. I researched about Mormons. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff. I also... Um, last week, which was finals week, nonetheless, um, visited an apartment complex, signed the lease the day after I visited. And then me and my wife started moving in, I think two or three days after that. So it was, well, actually we moved in a couple of things the day after we signed the lease. So that was crazy. Did not expect that that was going to happen. My wife got a position at an accounting firm in uh, Rosemont. So we had to move a little closer to her job. And so, I mean, really, really great stuff. But it was all just kind of one thing after another. You know, it was finals week and then we were moving. And so we got everything moved into the new apartment. Um, So I've got my own office, which is really nice. Um We also today just bought a used car, which was crazy. Um, So my life has kind of been 
just going at a million miles an hour. Um, but like I mentioned, I have been able to refocus and kind of reevaluate where I want to take this uh, podcast. And I think it's really timely that this is episode 20. We've got a bunch under our belt um, and we, you know, so I think I started kind of with more of a focus on biblical theology, even though I am not super experienced with biblical theology. I love the idea. I love the topic of it. Um, but I haven't taken a lot of courses. I haven't read a ton of books on biblical theology. That doesn't mean, I guess, that I'm not educated on it. But um, I think, and also, I think that my heart's passion is more towards like biblical studies. Um, so, and I think that's kind of where I've naturally leaned anyways, um, but I just think that it would be helpful to kind of clarify that that's where I'm going to be taking this podcast. We're going to be focusing more on biblical studies and using that as a way of approaching the text. And um, so biblical studies as an academic field is, it's a lot of things. There's um, a lot of language that goes into it. There's a lot of um, evaluation of manuscripts um, in the Old and New Testament. And there's all kinds of other things about how did we get the Bible that we have? How did, you know, what was going on in the mind of the author? All kinds of thoughts about the original process that went on. And so that's kind of always been my interest. And so I think it would just be natural to kind of agree that that's kind of where the focus of this show is going to go anyways. Um, And so with that being said, I've also been able to reevaluate kind of what the mission or like what the purpose of this podcast is. And I'm going to go through all the social media and update this. And um, hopefully I'll have more time during break to be more present on social media. And I, I, hope so. I don't know if that's actually going to be the case, but, um, the mission and I'll also update the intro to reflect this as well, but I, I wanted to, uh, update the mission to, or the, the vision of this as being dedicated to seeing Christ in every context of scripture for his exaltation in the church and proclamation to the world. So, what I mean when I say Christ in every context of scripture, and I think this was kind of my idea when I came up with the name or when uh, my friend Luke helped me come up with the name, but the idea is just that Christ is found in the context of the whole scripture. He's not just a New Testament guy. He, when he is talking to his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in Matthew 5.17, he says he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And then in Luke 24.27, it records, uh, Luke records that Jesus was explaining to some of his followers after the resurrection how he had fulfilled all of the scripture and how all of it was reflective of him. And um, But I don't want to take this approach that looks at the Old Testament um, and kind of tries to import Jesus where this clearer picture of Jesus 
then is given. So there are obviously prophecies like in Isaiah 53, where it's clear that there is a prophecy of a Messiah and a coming uh, suffering servant. However, there's other places, you know, where we read the law and it's confusing. There's a mystery about why, how this relates to Jesus. There's a mystery about how, about who God is. And so there's a bunch of passages in the New Testament that talk about this mystery. So Ephesians 1, 9, and 10 say that uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will, that that's God made known to us, his, the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. And then uh, Paul also writes in Colossians one twenty six that the gospel of Christ is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So there's a hidden mystery in the old covenant that we see that gets revealed in who Christ is. He continues in that same letter that uh, their hearts may be encouraged. This is Colossians 2, 2. Uh, their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. Hebrews one, one and two also say that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, uh, in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 capture this idea that in the old times, before Christ, God was speaking in these mysterious uh, ways and different times to reveal slowly who Christ would be. And now he has spoken in these last days, kind of the fullness of, of the gospel, the fullness of uh, what we need and um, the full, the full expression of who God is. So that's kind of the idea behind Christ in the context of the Bible or in every context of scripture that, uh, you know, he is found everywhere, but in some places it's not explicit, it's implicit and mysterious and, we don't want to go beyond what the text says, so sometimes we want to leave it up to what the mystery is, and that shouldn't be a bad thing. It should be something that leads us to worship, to, um, you know, wonder, and, like, there. I mean, there's things now that we read that are mysterious, things that are in the New Testament that are mysterious that we don't know, and so it's it shouldn't leave us upset that God has left things to mystery, but it should lead us to worship that... Um, there's so much more to who God is that like, we don't have to figure all of him out and we can't figure all of him out. And it will take an eternity of, excuse me, my ring just hit my water bottle. It will take an eternity of worship and fellowship with him and getting to know him to understand the mystery. So that leads to speaking of worship, that leads to the next thing. Um, that is, um, Christ in 
so Christ in every context of Scripture for his exaltation in the church. So there's a mystery, and a lot of this has to do with mystery. I just love the idea um, and the picture that's painted of Christ as the revealed mystery, and there's a mystery between the relationship of Christ and his church and the mystery of the church in the world. And so um, after explaining the role of men and women in a marriage relationship, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that even though he had already explained all this, and and this is good and useful, he says, this, is, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Um, and so this mystery of this dynamic and, uh, you know, submissive and leading relationship between two people, the husband and the wife is, is not just for us physical humans, but it's specifically in a, in a more important context, it's referring to Christ and the church. And so the, the church has always been about glorifying Christ and uniting believers to him. Um, excuse me. I, I also want to bring up 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, which says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The reason I bring up that scripture is because even though there is a mystery to the relationship of Christ and his church, um, as we begin to understand who Christ is, and as we begin to understand um, our role as his people, we are obviously equipped with certain gifts, and it is our job as the church um, to serve each other, to use those gifts to serve each other, um, and also to use those gifts to uh, glorify God and glorify Christ. So, um, you know, I don't, and I don't want to take this as, um, like, I'm not trying to say that I am your pastor through this podcast. I am simply hoping that this podcast and this further, like, deep dive, uh, like, in biblical studies will help us to understand Christ in a more uh, nuanced way or in a different way, perhaps. Not necessarily that we always have to look at a different thing or that we always have to find something new, but just to continue to explore Christ because he is, like, there's always going to be something that we learn about him. And so, um, out of that searching and uh, deep dive into his word, my hope is that that would at the very least cause us to walk away. uh, I would cause you to walk away from listening to this podcast, just glorifying him and um, being so um, humbled and, and uh, thankful for who Christ is and the, the, magnitude of just how wonderful of a gift he is. 
And so uh, that leads to, I guess, the last thing, which is um, to proclaim Christ in the world. And so I, I don't want this to just be something that is for the church and, uh, you know, just this, well, I, hmm, let me back that up a little bit. So this is obviously something that is for Christians. Um, and I mean, you can share this with non-Christians and, you know, if they're interested in the text of the Bible, I'm not going to tell you to not share that with them because I hope that this is something useful for them and, you know, for anyone who listens. But I'm hoping that the way that we understand the Bible will help us to give a better defense and understanding of hard questions that people have. So we've already tackled a lot of um, misused scriptures. And I think sometimes when we're talking with non-believers, um, sometimes one of the easiest things to tell them, um, a lot of times it's really easy, especially for us reformed people to get all presuppositional and, you know, really, um, on the offensive mode of, you know, asking like, well, you don't have any, you're presupposing a Christian worldview and you're stealing from the Christian worldview, but you're, you're not a Christian and blah, 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 you know, the drill. It's the, the precept world. But sometimes just answering questions and saying, you know, you're right. The church doesn't always agree on everything. And there's crazy people out there who say really crazy, stupid stuff. Here's what most of everyone else believes, or here's a proper way to look at the text. Um, that can be a very helpful stepping stone for a non-believer to get towards looking at the at the text and someone who isn't familiar doesn't know how to read the Bible and uh, it helps them to see okay there's a lot more complexity and diversity in these 66 books than you know you can't read all of them in the same way there there's more complexity there's more depth to it. And so we're going to be doing, I think we'll probably do other studies besides um, texts that are taken out of context, although I think that will probably be an ongoing forever series until the Bible, until everyone reads the Bible in context, so or until I die. So <laughs> um, let me read two more scriptures, and then we will get into the main topic of this podcast. So, you know, these are some reasons for why we want to proclaim uh, Christ to all of the world. That First uh, Peter 3.15 says to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. I think that's also verse 16, and I just forgot to add uh, verse 16 into my notes. 
Um, yes, that is verse 16 as well. So that's first Peter three, 15 and 16, um, which is in the context of suffering. Um, Peter's encouraging the church about suffering and being persecuted and being slandered. And so he's saying, you know, if there's people who are slandering you and, uh, you know, basically trying to force you to give an explanation about why you worship Christ. He says, always be ready. But in always, like in that, in always being ready, um, do it out of gentleness and respect, gentleness and reverence, um, and keep a good conscience, you know, keep a clear, calm, steady head so that in whatever way you're slandered, those who are slandering you or those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Uh, you know, they'll keep trying to slander you and uh, harass you basically. And in doing so, because of your gentleness and respect and good conscience, they'll be put to shame for doing such a thing to such a, a you know, level-headed person, basically. The last thing is Romans 12, 2, which um, I think 1 Peter three fifteen is probably a, a pretty popular passage, but Romans 12, 2 is also really popular. And it's just, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove uh, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is... Um, in part, just not being conformed to the world that as we understand Christ and as we worship him more, it will drive us to stay different from the world. So that is all that I've got to say about kind of the update and where we're moving. And that's just kind of the explanation for why I'm going to kind of change that tagline at the beginning of the like in the intro and I'll also put that in like the, the bios and our social media stuff. And, you know, I just want to be honest, want to give you the explanation for it. So anyways, Zechariah five verses five through 11 is a really interesting, uh, vision that Zechariah has. And I hope I can do a decent job at explaining it. Cause it's really really fascinating. So in the new American standard Bible, the 95 version, 1995 version, it says, then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, lift up now your eyes and see what is going forth. I said, what is it? And he said, this is the ephah going forth. Again, he said, this is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up, and this is a, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, "This is wickedness." And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah, and cast the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are you taking the ephah? Or where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. 
and when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. So, this is um, the seventh out of eight visions. So, we're getting close to the end of these eight night visions that Zechariah had. Um, they are all very interesting and very uh, peculiar. They don't really make a ton of sense as to, you know, like, why that? But the message behind them is profound and fascinating. And so there's, as I've been studying this, I've realized that, so the past two visions I had explained that this is kind of like the second cycle. Um, and so like one through f- four and uh, visions five through eight kind of parallel each other in their message, which is true. I'm going to continue to say that. So this is the third vision in the second cycle. So it's going to parallel the third vision of the first cycle in its message that the Lord will get rid of iniquity of the land. And that is made explicit in chapter three, verse nine. It says almost those words, word for word. But on the other hand, there's also a really neat thing that's going on where there, the content of the vision is similar in a chiastic structure or um, it's this kind of cyclical structure, if you want to call it that. So basically vision one and eight and parallel each other and visions two and seven parallel each other and three and six and four and five. And so we see in chap we see in the seventh vision this thing being cast out. Um, There's an object, which is an ephah, and it's got a woman in it, and that gets cast away. And in the second vision, there's also these horns that get smashed and cast away. Um, And it's most vivid in the eighth vision and the first vision, where there are four uh, chariots, and then in the first vision, there's four horsemen. So... I don't know specifically if it is one way or the other. I think I'm going to lean more towards the first, um, specifically like just with the message of it. But I think it's also probably both in some way. I don't know how. I don't know how Zechariah did that or how, like if he intended it to be both or if God is just that awesome and did it, like made it as both as he gave the message, I'm not entirely sure. So let's go verse by verse. Verse five says, then the angel who is speaking with me went out and said to me, lift up now your eyes and see what is going forth. And so this is just another uh, transition statement. It's possible that this is right after the previous vision. And the phrase lift up now your eyes is, very straightforward. It's uh, whenever we see that or whenever we have seen that, we've seen uh, another vision happen. So that's how we can tell, okay, this is vision number seven. And then we get to verse six and it says, I said, what is it? And he said, the angel says, this is the ephah going forth. Again, he said, this is their appearance in all the land. And so 
we are introduced to whatever this thing is that Zechariah sees, which is an ephah. And normally when we see this word, it's referring to a specific measure of dry material. Uh, but when this is, you, I think it was a fifth of a gallon. Uh, let's see. An ephah is, no, not a fifth of a gallon. It is five gallons is the measure, the dry capacity. According to Logos Bible Software, it is five gallons. Um, but as time continues to go on, um, the ephah was, you could also call something an ephah, like the pot that would hold or the, the basket that would hold the, um, five gallons. So he looks up, he sees this basket. Um, but as I was saying, time goes on and the word in the, like by the time of the post-exilic period, language changes, um, link, like we use words for different things. And so it's entirely possible that this word just means a basket at this point, a large basket at that. Um, obviously large enough for a woman to fit inside of it. Um, I, I don't think that he was seeing a five gallon bucket and imagining that this like a full grown woman was getting squished into a five gallon bucket. I think it was probably just a large basket or a large bucket and there's a woman in it, but we'll get more to the woman in a second. Um, before we get to that, I want to mention something that's really interesting. That is basically the translations are split down the middle on this. So it says that the angel explains that this is their appearance in all the land. And the reason why it says their appearance is because the Hebrew word is uh, a nam, I believe, or a name. Um, I forgot to put the vowel pointing, so I don't remember how exactly it's pronounced. But anyways, it looks like it is the word for I and then, or eyes, and then the uh, third person plural um, pronominal suffix, which just means there. That's fancy language for, it's the little thing that you add onto the end of a Hebrew word to refer to there. Um, however, the Septuagint and the Syriac translations of this um, refer to it as, so the Septuagint translates it as adika, which is unrighteousness. And the Syriac translates it as avam, or avo, avonam, sorry, totally biffed that, um, avonam, which would be from the word avon rather than um, ain. Yeah, aim. Uh, and so avon is iniquity or sin. So there's this interesting dynamic where early translators, you know, Septuagint, Syriac, are 
viewing this as some peculiar form of Avon, um, but some more of our modern translators want to view it as the word for I. And so the way that the NET Bible, the Net Bible, they've got a ton of phenomenal notes. You can get it for free at netbible.org, I believe. Uh, yeah, netbible.org. Uh, the notes that they have is that the Septuagint and Syriac read Avonam, their iniquity. And so the NRSV and the NIV and other, I think the CSB also uses similar translations of iniquity. But the Masoretic text, Anam, their I, uh, a reading that is consistent with the identification of the woman uh, in verse 8 as wickedness, but one that is unnecessary. In verse, in 410, the I represented divine omniscience and power. Here it represents the demonic counterfeit. So I'm actually going to agree with the NIV and the NRSV and the CSB and even the ESV translate it, translates it as iniquity. Um, I don't think it makes sense for, uh, for the, for Zechariah to use this word and refer to appearance as possible. And I'm sure that this word is used in other places for appearance. Um, but I think it would just make more sense in my opinion. And especially since there are other early translations that seem to see this as clearly referring to, um, iniquity. And then later on, we're introduced to this woman who is called wickedness. And so some translators are like, well, that's just redundant. So it, probably means their eyes or their appearance and then later it's wickedness i think that first we're introduced to the ephah which is iniquity and then the consequence of iniquity which is wickedness or it's this duplication it's just all of iniquity and evilness and bad things as it is are put together and thrown away. So it's tough to translate. Uh, All of that is to say that it's tough to translate. I think that it should be translated as iniquity, and uh, we'll see how the rest of this plays out. So then in verse 7, we get this uh, parenthetical statement, and behold, a lead cover was lifted up. So presumably there is a um, cover. There's this basket. I'm imagining a stone basket or a stone like bucket type thing. And then there's this heavy lead cover. Um, and this word is also used to refer to like flat plates or flat, like, uh, pieces of bread. And so it's this round circular flat piece made of lead that is just on top. So a heavy thing holding it down, covering it, it gets lifted up. And 
uh, and then it says, and this is a woman. Now, again, I surprisingly, I'm not really agreeing with how the NASB is translating this. Normally, I love the NASB, and I think they nail it. But here in Hebrew, it uh, literally says, and this single woman, or I mean, the most literally is, and this woman won, but makes sense to translate it as, and this single woman or this one woman was sitting in the midst of the ephah. So there's a woman. And the one commentary I was reading was saying that, um, like, extra, you know, translating it in English as single or, like, only or one woman or whatever is just redundant and unnecessary, but I think that actually it shows the vivid picture. It's showing that, hey, there's one woman inside of this. It's, I think, showing the collectiveness of what is later revealed about who this woman represents, and that's wickedness in verse 8. That the collective wickedness, all of it, all of the collective wickedness is brought together and put into this uh, ephah. And so in verse 8, the angel says that this is wickedness. And he threw her down in the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. And so she gets, you know, this <laughs> poor girl, <laughs> the uh, the top gets lifted up, she pops up, and then he's like, hey, this is wickedness, throws her back in and covers her back up. Thankfully, it's just a girl in a vision and not an actual girl, but that'd be pretty rough. So verse 9, uh, Zechariah continues, and he says that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and there two women were coming out of the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. And so there's these two women that come down, they grab the basket, and when we read this, we see that they've got wings of a stork, and we just kind of think, okay, that's some weird imagery, uh, or vivid imagery, whatever, meh, not that big of a deal. But this is actually really interesting because from what I can tell, commentators don't actually agree on what the significance of referring to a stork is. First of all, if you've ever seen a stork, they've got really long wings. And so it might just be referring to the fact that these women had long wings and that's it. Big enough wings. They obviously needed big wings to lift up a very heavy bucket with a lead weight on it and a woman in it. So they had to be strong enough and they were carried along with the wind as well. But, um, I don't think that's all of it. One commentator, uh, continued to say that this is, uh, the word for stork derives from the word chesed, which I think a lot of us have probably heard that word, which means, a lot of times loving kindness or um, love. There's a bazillion different ways to translate it. Um, 
faithfulness, things like that. And so um, he was explaining that the stork kind of has these similar qualities. I'd be interested to read more about how, like the etymology of that, because I don't think that's a necessary like um, deduction to make that just because they're similar um, in the root that like, just because the word stork has chesed in its root, like that doesn't inherently mean that the stork is loving, kind and faithful and things like that. It's possible that that's where it came from, but I don't know if that's a necessary thing to draw from that. On the complete opposite side, though, there's another commentary who said that it's also possible that these women were wicked because storks were unclean. So there's these unclean creatures that take away wickedness with them and they get sent along with the Ruach. And so, you know, we could maybe imagine that it's the spirit of God that's pushing away the unclean and wickedness um, possible. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if either of those are uh, right. I think both of them kind of take things a little bit too far in both directions. And I think it's just safe to say that Zechariah was just using vivid imagery. Um, and so this basket gets taken up by these women. I don't know why it's women. Um, why there's a woman in the basket. I don't know why it's women that come and pick up the basket. Um, but they do. And so at the end of the vision, the, uh, Zechariah looks at the angel and he says, where are they taking it? So he knows that the basket is symbolizing iniquity. He knows that, um, the woman symbolizes wickedness. And so he's like, okay, where, what's going on? So then the angel says, they're going to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. And this is normally a place where most of us English readers just, you know, we see the land of Shinar and we're like, okay, cool. I don't know what that means. Next verse. Well, this is one of the things where it's actually really cool to look up. Even just in a in the back of your Bible, there's usually um, a concordance that will explain or give you different references to the word um, Shinar. So I'm actually going back there because I didn't do this yet, but I'm curious about what other places Shinar is used um, because I know that it was, I have it written down that it was written in Daniel 1, 2, um, but it's also possible that it was used in other places as well. Uh, let's see. It is not in the back of my Bible. Um, 
So sometimes it takes a little bit more digging. But anyways, Shinar in Daniel 1-2 is associated with the Babylonian rule and pagan idol worship. Uh, so this town or the, the city is associated with idol worship. And so for wickedness to be taken away to idol worship is to say that the wicked idol worshipers are going along with it. And so this is pretty much another way of further pushing the point that wickedness is being taken away idolaters are going away and it's a permanent thing. All of the idolaters will be somewhere else. They will be worshiping their own wickedness, all of that. And so the text is, this whole vision is primarily speaking towards the Jews rebuilding the temple. And that's with every vision that we've seen so far. It's the the Jews who are building temples, city of Jerusalem and this would serve as a hopeful message that they would no longer have to deal with sin or wickedness, and not just that they wouldn't have to deal with it, but that it would permanently be removed. And so, as we look at this text with within the context of redemption and, you know, what's the mystery? Like, where is Christ in this? The mystery of Christ is that he is the the one who is removing the wickedness uh, and that we are the ones who need our wickedness taken away from us. We need God's supernatural work in our life to remove it and remove it permanently because if it was impermanent, it would come right back and we would continue to do sin and continue to uh, practice our own wickedness but it's because of Christ that it is taken away and it's will one day permanently in the new creation be destroyed and done away with. And so he has already accomplished this on the cross and it will one day be a full reality to us. So uh, I hope that this episode has been edifying and useful and that it will help you to glorify Christ. If you enjoyed it, um, share it with a friend, uh, leave a rating and review. Let me know what you thought. Let me know if you've got questions. I'd love to interact with you. Um, Until next time, read your Bible, bro. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen and subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. If you have a question that you would like to hear answered on the show, reach out on social media or email us at ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. We are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters and Doctrinal Discipleship. For other edifying material, check out reformpodcasts.com and Doctrinal Discipleship either on Facebook or doctrinaldiscipleship.com.